Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. I'm going to welcome up our uh, lead pastor, Billy Glosson, as he walks us through this text this morning. Let's pray for him. God, you are so kind and so good to bring your people together on a cold uh, February morning um, to bring us together into the warmth, not only of a building, but also of of a people and of a community. Um, And God, as we walk through this text this morning, as we continue to seek to learn about your providence and your sovereignty in a story that can, that can seem so dark and so sinister sometimes, Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts and, and open our minds to what you would have us see this morning through the difficulties of um, this passage, the difficulties of the circumstances in this story. I pray that you would uh, clear Billy's mind, give him clarity of speech as well. I pray that Lord, I just pray that the Spirit would move from this place through this text, through Billy, and through your people as you teach us what it is that we need to know. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we are continuing on through Esther, and I have to wonder, as we read this, have you ever experienced just a wild coincidence, right? Maybe, maybe you've had a situation, a moment where you're like, well, that was lucky, Right? That was some good chance that happened. I definitely have, right? In fact, the, the story of Coram Deo is maybe just like a string of coincidences, right? Since my wife Hannah and I moved here, there's been all kinds of crazy stuff. Like one like kind of throwaway thing that's not really a throwaway thing is that when I was in college, um, I met some folks and they were like, whoa, this is a wild coincidence. Like you live in like Burke County, North Carolina. We're from Marion. And that was the rights, right? And then it got even weirder when I moved here and I got a message from Cody Wright and he was like, hey man, I saw you're moving to North Carolina. Where are you moving? I was like, oh, Morganton, don't you guys live in Marion? He says, nope, we live in Morganton. I'm like, well, huh, that's an interesting coincidence, right? There's all kinds of stories like that where there are these weird things that seem to just line up and you're like, hey, what's, what's happening here? But let me tell you one of my favorite coincidences and uh, it's about a, a good friend of a lot of us, Jen James, who is our deacon of Coram Deo Kids. So in October of 2019, I got a letter for Pastor Appreciation Month from Jen, and I asked her, hey, can I share this this upcoming Sunday? And she said, yeah, absolutely, because I won't be there. I've got a conference that I have to go to, so please share it that week. So now many of you guys, maybe you know Jen, you love Jen, but if you don't, this will hopefully be a great story for you as well. See, Jen moved to Morganton from Oklahoma, and for a long time while she was here, she felt really disconnected. She really struggled to feel settled, and she felt like, man, I'm just never going to find a place where I belong. I'm just never going to find a church family, and I guess that's okay. 
Well, slowly, she began to press into doubt, and she started wondering, right, do I even belong in the church, right? Is this really a place for me? Fast forward, and she's visiting a friend at a church in Texas. She goes there. It's a Sunday morning, and she's kind of begrudgingly there. She's kind of dragged into church. And, and the sermon that day dealt with doubt and dealt with wrestling with God. It was a story of Jacob from the book of Genesis. It's a story that has long resonated with Jen because of her own personal struggles. In the sermon, the preacher made this observation. He said, Jacob said that I saw God face to face. And do you know what that means? To see the face of God? It's an expression, right, in church history called Coram Deo. It's an expression about living before the face of God. So Jen loved that. She loved this idea that Jacob wrestled, pressed into God, beheld him face to face, and lived. And so she wrote down Coram Deo, before the face of God, and said, this is something I'm going to remember. This is something I'm going to pray about. So after that trip, she comes back home. She's sharing struggles with some friends that she, you know, she's, she's living, or she's living in Hickory. She's driving to Morganton. She feels kind of disconnected. And someone mentions, hey, I hear there's a new church being planted in Morganton. You should check them out. And she said, oh, okay, cool. What's their name? Oh, it's called Coram Deo Church. <laughs> now, some of y'all might be thinking, that's a pretty cool coincidence. That's a really neat coincidence. This is what Jen had to say in her letter about plugging in with this brand new church plant team. She said, I didn't want to go to church. And if I did then, I didn't want to bring my honest self there. Where I stand now, to quote a poem that is frankly overquoted, earth crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. I've always felt like I was the wrong shape for church somehow. I've always felt like the things I love need to be left at the door that I have decided I have to decide between either loving my neighbor or Christian community. I've always felt like I wasn't holy enough for Sundays. But this idea that every moment is before the face of God has moved me. If every moment is there, and of course, of course it is, then God is not afraid of my friendships with those who do not yet know him. God is not daunted by my moments of doubt and confusion. Instead, it is a humbling and honest moment of acknowledging that God is and has been in each moment. That I can walk into a church again, not because I have reached a level of moral achievement, but because I remain known fully and loved regardless. And when I say this, I mean that the love of God is able to both convict and not condemn. But I also mean that I have seen this in you and in this community that you have shepherded. This is not a place in which I feel afraid to be known. I mean, y'all can keep your coincidence. You can keep your luck because this is God's providence. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. It's everywhere. It's resounding. And today we, we, we see this like, I mean, this is like, the best of best stories. We see this striking turn of events in the, in the story. And it starts with Esther's plan. Now, just as a re recap, if you're wondering where, we've, where we have been, it's been three days since we last saw Esther. 
she made the decision as she spoke with her cousin Mordecai, right? Here's kind of just a nutshell of what's happening. Esther is a, a Jewish girl in a Persian world. She wins this uh, beauty contest that she didn't really want to be in to become Queen Esther, right? And then there's this assassination attempt against the king. Mordecai, her cousin, he says, hey, there's this thing going on. They stop it. They squelch it. Fast forward a little bit more. And now we learn that there's a new character, Haman, who wants to, guess what, kill all the Jews. He talks to King Xerxes. Xerxes is like, sounds good to me. And it's a bad situation. Esther, the queen, is now invited, right, by Mordecai, encouraged by Mordecai, pleaded to by Mordecai to go to the king. Now, doing so is dangerous because, again, if you go to the king uninvited, and she hadn't been invited for 30 days, you could be killed. You could be killed. And so she says famously, right, because Mordecai responds to her and says, who knows if you have become queen for such a time as this. It's been three days since she said, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. Now, before we get to the scene, we learn something profound. Here's what we learn. And this is probably not going to be fun for everybody. We learn the value of waiting. We learn the value of waiting on the Lord. You see, Esther had asked Mordecai, she said, hey, I need you and all of the Jews, all of our people to fast. Now, what does that mean? What what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, let's read this from Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It is so insanely difficult for you and I to wait. Like legitimately, I have made a purchase this week, not on the basis of whether or not I thought it was a better quality product than something, but because it was one day shipping and not two day shipping. That's a real, that's a real thing that happened, right? We don't like to wait. We want it now, immediately, right? But when you and I wait on the Lord, it can be difficult. And it can feel sometimes like he isn't present. But God is, friends, active, and he is working in power. You see, in those moments when we seek the Lord in prayer, when we wait, God's not only working in our hearts. He's working in others' hearts. And all the while, he is giving us strength. This is what Esther is doing. She has been waiting, and the moment has come. So let's catch up. And let's see what happens as Esther approaches the king. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robe and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Esther goes forward. And wouldn't you know it, God has softened the king's heart. Instead of just jumping out, right, and immediately responding to Xerxes, right? She doesn't go up to the king and he says, what's your request? She doesn't fall into a puddle of tears because Esther has been waiting on the Lord. And she has a wise plan. She could have made her plea, but she has been waiting on the Lord. Here's what this means. It means this. When you and I wait on the Lord, when you and I seek God, we aren't just doing nothing. What we're doing is we're staying preoccupied with him. We're focusing on who God is, what he has done, and we are petitioning the Lord for his wisdom, right? So often we want the Amazon Prime answer, right? We don't see that God wants to stir our affections, our desires to trust and abide in him, right? Often I don't want to rest in the providence of God to accomplish his purposes. I want the purposes of Billy to come to pass. But how much better are his plans than mine? Esther hasn't just been sitting around. Yes, she's waiting on the Lord, but in that she is practicing faith. And hear this, faith is is measured by what you do, not just what you talk about doing. Faith is measured by what you do, not just what you talk about doing. And she takes a risky step, right? She knew to go about this, she was gonna have to go about it in a strategic and clear way. And so rather than just, again, falling into a puddle of tears, immediately saying, this guy who's number two in the command wants to kill me. She doesn't do that. Instead, she invites Haman and Xerxes to a feast. And y'all know Xerxes, he likes a feast. So he's down. He's into that, right? He wants it a six-month feast, so I'm in. And it goes fantastically, right? They're eating, they're feasting, they're drinking wine, and the king says, hey, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. It's yours. But she doesn't just come out. Even then, she waits to speak. You see, Esther could have done everything today that she's going to do tomorrow, but she's been waiting on the Lord, and now she's trusting in God's timing. So she says, there's something I do want, but I want you to wait till tomorrow. Don't you love that? I hate when people do that to me. Y'all yeah, tell you, can we meet, like, next Thursday? No, we can meet today. Like, right now, I'm free. My, my afternoon's open, right? That's What's happening? She says, I will wait till tomorrow to tell you. For some reason, as we'll soon learn, God's timing is going to require one more day. For now, we're going to trust that God is up to something. And we're going to pan the scene over and we're going to look at Haman and his hatred. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says this. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friend and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and now and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, 
even, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I'm invited to her, I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallow of 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman's leaving the feast, and he's got a pep in his step. Nobody's as great as me. I'm the best, right? He's got, I'm the man, I'm the man. Like He's just like loving life. And then boom, there he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow. Mordecai doesn't tremble. And everything comes crashing down. Now, why is that? Because Haman hates Mordecai. And as long as Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, well, Haman can't handle that. He goes home and he just starts sharing how great his life is. You ever been around someone like that? It's just like, man, let me tell you how awesome I am and why I'm so awesome. You're just like, hey, can't wait. This is going to be really fun. He's got money. He's got the king's favor. He's number two in the kingdom. He has 10 sons, so his lineage will be great. His name will be remembered forever. But as long as Mordecai lives, well, then he can't have any joy. What's that for you? Is there something because you can't have it? You feel like your life's just not settled? You see, for Haman, his circumstances determine whether or not he's going to have happiness in his life. Haman can't enjoy anything unless he has everything. Haman's problem isn't Mordecai, it's Haman. You see, the problem for Haman, and really, friend, the problem for you, problem for me, is that what we really want is God. Augustine says it famously, our hearts, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are longing for the living God, but those desires get twisted by sin and and pride and all of these fleeting pleasures. They're pointing us to the reality that we were made for something that this world can never satisfy in us, but can only awaken in us. We We can't get what we want in this world. And it reminds us, friends, that we were made for something more. And until we realize that, until our hearts pursue the living God, we are all on Haman's path. And so Haman is complaining and bragging. And finally, we see his wife's arrest just be like, okay, dude, like, if it's really that big of a problem, why don't you just build a gallows and have Mordecai killed? Now, Haman loves this idea. And he proceeds to build a gallows. Now, 50 cubits, what is that? Seven stories high. And this also is not like, you know, Old West, high noon, hang them. Like, that's not what's happening in Persia. They would build these giant stakes, and then they would impale a person on it. Yeah, real heartwarming. So, so this is perfect because not only is he going to kill Mordecai, he's going to torment him, and he's going to torment the entire city to say, this is what happens when you stand opposed to me. He loves it. And so now, 
Haman goes to sleep to the sweet sound of construction, right? Normally you hate that, but for him, those hammers, those nails, like a lullaby, wooing him away to slumber. But meanwhile, someone else can't seem to fall asleep. The scene pans back over, and we see Xerxes, and he's having a restless night. Look at chapter 6. Look at verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young man who had attended him said, nothing, nothing has been done for him. Man, what a wild coincidence, right? That's weird. I mean, the king couldn't sleep, you know? And so he, 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 you know, he's just up. Now, is this coincidence or providence? I think we know the answer. Have you ever had a sleepless night? Ever been woken up at two or three in the morning and you're like, why am I awake? Let me just say this. This is a side. Maybe, maybe God has you up for a reason. Don't waste it. I love this because Xerxes can do anything he wants. Xerxes is the greatest known leader in the known, is the greatest leader in the known world at the time. He's got money out the wazoo. He's got women on demand. He's got any food, any drink he can imagine, but he can't do this. He can't fall asleep. Why is that? What does Proverbs 21:1 say? It says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Xerxes, right? For all the things he could have done, he could have called women to comfort him. He could have brought food in, all these things. Here's what he does. He says, read to me the chronicles of the king. And what is that? It's a mixture of names, numbers, and dates, but they all detail how awesome he is. So Xerxes is basically like, hey, here's what I want to do. Go get a boring book, but if it's boring, at least make it, you know, about me, how great I am, so that I can slowly drift to sleep and hear the deeds recounted of my sheer awesomeness. The problem is, they get to this account from five years earlier about how Mordecai had uncovered an assassination attempt. Now, isn't that something? coincidentally, Xerxes can't sleep. Coincidentally, he asks something to be read to him. And coincidentally, this servant goes to all these great books, picks one, opens it up, and it's coincidentally a story about Mordecai. Hmm. Wonder what's happening here. Y'all can keep your coincidences. This is providence. Xerxes in the wee hours of the morning asks if anyone is there. Hey, I need, I need some help. We've got to do something for this guy. I don't really know what to do. Something needs to be done. And he says, hey, is anyone in the courtyard? It's early in the morning. Is maybe somebody there that I could talk to, one of my advisors. And, and who do you think may have gotten up extra early that morning to see and behold his beautiful construction site? Check this out. It's too good. It's too good. Verse 4 of chapter 6. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Y'all, this is so good. 
I love it. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the one, of, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before them, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Man, don't you love this? It's so good. I love it. Haman goes on a huge rant, right? And he just goes in there and he's like, well, of course the king is talking about who but me, the most awesome person that has ever lived. And he gives the most like lavish, extreme example. He's basically saying, hey, make this person feel like they're the second most important person in the kingdom. Like dress them up and basically say, hey, this is the king in waiting. Now check this out, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a coincidence, huh? Nah, this is a providential moment. Because divine insomnia leads to ultimate irony. You can just like see Haman's face, right? He's just like, King, you got to like pull out all the stops. You got to dress them in your robes and and give them your horse and and parade them through the city. And he's like, I love it. Can you do that for Mordecai the Jew? And then you just see Haman's face being like. Like one word would have changed that, right? If he would have said, what should I do to honor Mordecai? Haman would have been like, I don't, I don't know, give him like some chicken and waffles or like, like a button that says the king's favorite guy. Like, I don't know. But instead, he goes on this great bravado, all this pride, and it leads to his downfall. God knows just when to show up. God knows just when to show up. God wants us to trust in him. That even when the days seem dark, listen, they are dark. You think Mordecai didn't know what was going on when he woke up that morning and looked and saw this giant gallow for someone to be impaled on? You think he was clueless as who that could have been? Things look bleak, but God's timing is clear. There's been a lot of coincidences for Coram Deo. We were planning on, uh, on getting things started. We, we had been in my uh, house for way too long, and we're like, we got to gather somewhere. We can't find anywhere. We don't know where we're going to meet. And then all of a sudden, I just happened to get invited to go to this Young Life Committee and potentially be a part of it. I just happened to meet another pastor in town named Mike Schillinglaw, who just has happened to be praying for Coram Deo for months and has been trying to get a hold of me but didn't have my contact. Invites us to come and gather in their facilities. We don't know what we're going to do because guess what we had at the time? Nothing. Um, we didn't have any equipment. 
And so I just thought on a, on a whim, I was like, you know what? Today, I'm going to go ahead and just send out an email, a newsletter that says, hey, pray for Cormdale. We've got a new space that we're going to be gathering. We're going to do these preview gatherings. We'll see what God does. Um, but if, if you would, if you guys know anything about sound systems or, or anything like that, we'd love to connect with you to hear about that or if you would like to give towards us doing that. That same day, there's a church all the way up in Alexandria, Virginia, exact same day, who has an elder meeting because they're meeting in a new facility that has everything they need. And they no longer need this trailer with a sound system and kids' stuff because they have everything. They're like, man, wouldn't it be great if God just like made it abundantly clear who we should give that to? And coincidence of coincidences, wouldn't you know, an, in- an email pops in this guy's inbox. We drive up to Alexandria, Virginia, hook up a trailer that has everything we need in it, including the speakers you're hearing me on right now. Stories like that abound for this church. We find out we get to meet at Little Guatemala at the beginning of May last year, and uh, you know what we had for you guys to sit on? AstroTurf. Um, It's beautiful and lovely, but, you know, it's also been walked on, so you probably don't want to put your booty on it. So we were like, what do we do? We got to buy some chairs. All right, that's fine. You know, we, we can look at this. We can look at our expenses. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. We're going to buy them. I show up to an event in Asheville, and they're like, hey, what's something that you just, like, would like the Lord to do? And I was like, man, um, would you guys pray for us? We're getting ready to meet in this new facility, and we can afford it, but it's kind of one of those things where we would like to use that money to be more present in our city and give it away than buy chairs. <laughs> the person sitting across the way says, um, no, you don't need to spend a dollar. I've got 200 chairs. Do you want them? (laughs) God has been weaving together the details. He is totally and completely involved in our lives. These aren't coincidences. It's God's sovereign kindness and his providence. One last scene for us, verse 12 of chapter 6. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman... Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So Haman is humiliated, right? He just built this insanely opulent, massive gallow to display his power and grandeur. And as he's going to say, hey, king, can we kill this guy? The king says, actually, no, I want you to honor him. And like a buffoon, he makes this huge, like, this is what we need to do. Like, we need to, like, go over the top. And then he has to be the one to carry him and parade him through the city, the man he had hoped to kill. And now we see his wife realizes that they were foolish to try and plan against the Jewish people. Now again, Esther doesn't say God's name, but his name is whispered in every page because they know the stories of the Jewish people, how God has always caused his people to prevail. Haman goes from skipping and whistling to sweating. And we see it now, right? The pace is picking up. It's drawing to a climax. It's drawing to a final battle that we're going to pick up on next week. And I know, like, again, you can read ahead, but we've got to pause here. And we've got to ask the question, what does all of this mean for me today? Right? What does this mean for you and for me today? Three questions that the book of Esther stirs within us to ask 
Is there a God? Is he sovereign? And is he good? Are these questions our world has been wrestling with or what in recent days? Certainly over the last two years, we've asked these questions. And you may say, Bill, I've never asked those specific questions. Maybe not, but maybe you've asked, what is going on out there? What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my grandkids? What's going to happen if this scenario plays out? What's going to happen if this scenario happens? Why would a sovereign God let this happen? Why would a sovereign God let me lose this friendship over silly stuff like politics and Facebook? Why would a sovereign God allow me to lose my job, or my spouse, or my family? If God is so kind, why is my life such a mess? If God is so good, then why does his world look so bad? And what we can't do, Coram Deo, is we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I guess everything happens for a reason. Because that misses the who and the why. Who is behind the scenes and is there a purpose to this? I remember the moment I doubted God's sovereignty the most. Many of you guys have heard the story of my wife and I's miscarriage, but you haven't heard details. And I'm going to share them with you now. We, we stood there. I told Michael this this morning. We stood there across from the midwife after they had panic-strickenly brought in uh, a first a Doppler, then an ultrasound tech, and then they commissioned another ultrasound. And one of the other midwives that came in says, I'm so sorry, you've suffered a missed abortion. Which is maybe the worst way that you can say miscarriage, by the way, to a woman who is expecting a child. We were supposed to leave. We just asked if we could hear the heartbeat. We got in the car. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. So I just played the song Sovereign over us. Again, I'm trying to play the theological chess match in my head. I'm trying not to doubt. I'm trying to trust Jesus. I stayed positive all the way through the procedure that Hannah had to go through, through the DNC. I stayed positive. Even when she lost so much blood, they were thinking they had to keep her and she passed out on the way to the bathroom. But the moment of my collapse happened a week later. I was at work and I get a phone call from Hannah. She's she's crying and I'm like, babe, just calm down. What's wrong? And she said, the doctor is worried that I have uterine cancer. I went to the utility closet and I just cried like a baby. I'm supposed to be the the Christian. I was a pastor. I was supposed to have it all together, and I couldn't. Just sitting there amongst brooms, weeping like a baby. Wondering how, why, where are you? Why her? No one is as kind as my wife. I'm sorry if you think you are. She's the best. She doesn't deserve this. This past week, This past week, we celebrated our son Samuel's first birthday. We gave him cake. It was great. (laughs) He was born February 1st, 2021. February 1st, 2017 was the day that my wife popped into my work and said, guess what? 
and then held up a pregnancy test, which was kind of gross, but she did it anyways. That was a pregnancy that ended in a late-term miscarriage and a lot of doubt and a lot of confusion. And wouldn't you know it, on February 1st, 2021, Samuel Moses was born. And Hannah held Samuel, and she spoke words that just were music to my ears. She, she looked at these women, all these nurses that were in there, and she said, I don't know if you know Jesus, but he is real. He carried me through loss, and he's carrying me now. My son's name is Samuel, and that means God heard. He heard me. Jesus is real, and he's the truest thing you could ever know. How she was coherent after giving birth, I have no idea. How she spoke such true words, I have no clue, other than to say that God was with us. And those moments when it felt like he had abandoned us, God in his sovereign providential kindness could see in fullness of time. He was both right there with us as we were mourning as I was in the utility closet, and he was right there with us as we were singing, you're a man of your word, holding our brand new baby boy, and he's right here with you in the midst of your coincidences and circumstances, saying, I have not left you, I am with you. Here is what I want you to know, Coram Deo. God's providence over your, li- over your life is both personal and purposeful. I mean, looking back over this season of our marriage, right, over those times when we were just so confused and frustrated, over the, the weeks and weeks where we literally had to go and get blood work, and then we went to Chick-fil-A to try and make it better. God used it in profound ways as a deeply formative season for my wife and I. If we look at Esther, and we fast forward 600 years, we see the Apostle Paul writing to a Roman church under an evil, vindictive, manipulative leader. They're experiencing persecution like you can't imagine. The Apostle Paul, man, if you think that his life was sunshine and roses, go read 2 Corinthians 11 because it was shipwrecks and snake bites. This is what he says to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a striking statement. I fear it's over-familiar for us. Listen, God is the master over the, all of the isolated details of our lives. He's the master over all the mistakes, the regrets, the pains. He is always, always working for our good. The maniacal planning in a Persian courtroom, the sleepless nights of a king in God's hands, though it seems invisible, those random things are harmonious, working out a purpose for his people. Coincidence is not the same as providence. Coincidence says sometimes in the random chaos of a meaningless universe, things will sometimes align. But providence says it's the intentional design of a meaningful universe. And in it, God always works in a perfect way. Here is the question I want you to sit with. How much How much must the God of the universe love you in order to pay attention to you like that? You see, if these moments don't happen, 
if Haman gets his wish, then the Jews would be blotted out from the world. And guess what that means? It means we never get Jesus. Oh, but friend, God is pursuing you always. He gives beauty for ashes. He takes your sin and your shame and he nails them to the cross of Calvary. He takes your broken baggage and just as we read from the New City Catechism, he gives you righteousness. He infuses your life with intentional purpose. He says, I am always at work. I look back at moments like Samuel's birth, like the chairs that you're sitting on, like the speakers that you're hearing me on, notes that I received from people like Jen, and my heart is full because I see God is always in control. And listen, there are days that I doubt, but I look back and I remember all the ways that God has been faithful. And I can feel God lovingly reminding my heart as the enemy whispers lies in my ears like God has forgotten you. He doesn't want good for you. This world is broken. No one cares. And God quietly whispers to the enemy, do you know who you're dealing with? I am the God who speaks cosmos into existence. I can take brokenness and I can make newness with it. I take tragedies like miscarriages and lies and abuses and I turn them into triumph because I am the eternal king of the ages. And I do not forget my people. I am with you always, Jesus said, to the end of the age. He has not forgotten you, Corindeo. He will not forget you. He is for you. Coincidences, y'all can keep those. I'm waging my bet on providence. Let's pray. God, we need you. Every moment, every hour, every minute, this world is hopelessly, completely broken. It's no surprise to you. Jesus, we forget the gospel. We say, where are you, God? You lovingly remind us of the cross of Calvary that says, I am dealing with sin, with death, with pain. I'm doing something. And the enemy would love to whisper lies to have us all deconstruct and be frustrated and angry and bitter. But the spy in the heart, the Holy Spirit won't let us go. You whisper to us that you are doing something. Even when it feels like you're gone, even when it feels like the gallow is looming over us, you love to turn everything around. How good are you, God? Jesus, would you remind us of your providence? Would you remind us of your kindness? Lord, I pray that you would make much of yourself today. I pray for hearts, Lord, who are all over the place. Some come in this morning, maybe numb. Life's just busy. Some are coming in beat up and broken. Some are coming in discouraged. But Lord, you are at so, God, I pray that you would do what you can do and only you can do, that you would change hearts, that you would
would stir and compel us, Lord, to, to obedience, that you would help us to wait on you, to hear from you, to listen to you, to yearn for you. In a world filled with trinkets and toys, calling out for our attention, would your voice speak out louder? Jesus, come and work. This we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.